Welcome to the Reflective Teaching in a Digital Age podcast series. In these conversations, we discuss technology-inspired changes in STEM education. The title of today's episode is Effective Design for Team-Based Engineering Experiences. Nicole and I will talk with Drs. Robin Fowler and Trevion Henderson. Dr. Fowler is a teaching professor in technical communication and engineering education researcher at the University of Michigan. Her teaching is primarily in team-based engineering courses, and her research focuses on equity in communication and collaboration, as well as in group design decision-making. Dr. Trevion Henderson is an assistant professor of mechanical engineering at Tufts University. Dr. Henderson's research is broadly concerned with how students in and out of classroom experiences affect their learning, focusing particularly on the ways that students' socioacademic relationships shape their learning and engineering education. Well, Robin and Trevion, welcome to our Reflective Teaching in a Digital Age podcast series. It's really wonderful to have you uh, here with us today and really excited about an opportunity to talk about teamwork, working together, very complex concept that's relevant to not only many of the engineering disciplines, but I think to more general STEM disciplines as well. I think it will be an incredibly useful conversation for for us, but also for our listeners as well. And maybe to start us off, if you don't mind, to give a little bit of your background and research interest information to share with our listeners, and um, then we'll get into our conversation. Okay. My name is Robin Fowler. I'm a teaching faculty member at University of Michigan. I teach technical communication, but I am embedded in engineering courses, and I'm most excited when I'm teaching in design courses where the students are working in teams and designing something. And from that, so I I came with a background in teaching writing, but not a background in supporting students working in teams. And As an instructor who really cares about my students' experiences in my classes, I was observing some issues that I uh, found concerning in my groups. And from that, I think my research interests have developed. And so I'm really interested in the patterns of power and marginalization that happen in student teamwork, especially in the negotiation of designs um, in a a context of co-design and how some designs get selected by groups and how some designs don't. and kind of decision-making under uncertainty in that space. Thank you. Um, And my name is Trevion Henderson. I am an assistant professor of mechanical engineering and STEM education at Tufts University, where I also serve on the steering committee for the Institute for Research on Learning and Instruction. I have to say that my work centers on how students' socioacademic relationships shape their learning, and most often that means that I am studying how students collaborate in learning environments. More specifically, I'm interested in teamwork and team thinking, particularly in engineering design, because the nature of engineering design means that power dynamics can shape how students negotiate things like task allocation, idea selection, and idea contributions as they're working in teams, which I think can shape how how they learn in engineering. So, okay, so thank you both for being here. The first question I'll ask is, how do you teach your students to work in teams? So we're starting with a really broad question. Um, and I think that this is, it's an important one because there is a tendency, at least in higher education, for, I think in some courses, that we put students in groups and we presume that we will hear about the worst problems and we'll address those problems and that we might not do other sorts of either um, structuring ahead of the, the group 
um, experience in order to help the students work in teams better or or during or after. And I think that there are really important roles that instructors can play in how we form our groups, in how we um, do formative assessment, which can be formal or can be very informal, can just be wandering around and listening to the groups, and then in how we support the groups um, throughout the process. And I feel like I could probably talk for an hour in answering this question, but that's not what you want. So I'll shut up and we can go deeper in specific areas. I agree with Robin that there is no one way to teach teamwork. Uh, but one of the things that's been at the forefront of my mind lately is that it, a lot of the ways that we teach teamwork has everything to do with the nature of the activities that we're doing. So Robin and I, uh, as researchers and as uh, educators, co-taught a, t- a course on engineering design. It was first year engineering design. And in that course, uh, students are engaged in design projects. Design is by its nature uh, ambiguous, it's ill-structured. And what that means is that students have multiple solution paths, they have multiple correct solutions. And because they have multiple ways of going about uh, the design process, that means they have to negotiate this in teams. But also uh, that means that the process of negotiation is imbued with all sorts of interactional communication and power dynamics. Those interaction and communication dynamics can shape uh, which ideas are being heard. It can shape which ideas are being selected or not selected. Uh, But it can also shape which uh, students get access and opportunities to complete particular tasks in the classroom and in the uh, design process. On the other hand, I teach an ES2 uh, intro to computing course here at Tufts. And in that class, we're doing teamwork and collaboration, but because students frame the, the the learning activities as having one correct answer, um, it's much easier, for example, to shut down students who are trying to pull apart concepts and trying to learn different concepts, but who are not producing correct solutions. So the nature of participation, the nature of collaboration looks very different because of the nature of the two activities are so very different. One question I thought about that myself being very interested in teamwork dynamic and uh, how do you support that, that a lot of the students before they get to college, say, you know, before they started the engineering degree or whatever degree, they don't necessarily have much exposure to teamwork. And perhaps in sports, right, maybe playing in a music band, there is some learning about teamwork. And then they come, for example, to engineering, and then you start teaching, working in teams. Why, maybe it's a little bit of an unusual question, why do you think it's important to teach them? Why not let them figure it out on their own and and see what happens? So this might feel a little disparate, uh, but there's this, another question that I'm often asked when we uh, do research on like how students participate in different tasks in, team, in teamwork. Uh, people will ask, well, in industry, it's not the case that every single student will do every single piece of all the projects, right? Normally in industry, a, one engineer will have a certain you know, aspect of the project that they are uh, tending to. And my response to that is always, but this is a learning environment. Actually, it is the case that we want students to participate in every single aspect of the learning environment, right? If there are five tasks to complete for a design uh, project, we want students to do some of all of the tasks because it's a part of their learning. I think my response to your question is exactly the same way. It's exactly the same thing, that this is a learning environment um, and that we want students to have access to Uh, all of the uh, learning opportunities in the classroom. What we know from research is that when we leave students to their own devices, all sorts of dynamics uh, start to shape who gets access to what uh, types of learning opportunities. So uh, the paper that uh, I published recently in studies in engineering education 
uh, we're thinking about how uh, task allocation unfolds in teams. Some of it is students who had prior experiences doing something, say, let's say coding, right, are more likely to get the coding task because they feel really confident, they've done it before, they're concerned about their grades, and so they want the person who who is really, really good at it to do the coding assignment. Um, some of it is uh, other dimensions, so things like uh, their own confidence or their own uh, socioacademic relationships within the team. My concern is that certain students get to uh, the university learning environment with more of those experience for all sorts of social and cultural socioeconomic reasons, right? And the students who come in with less of those experiences tend to be uh, students from uh, underrepresented or minoritized communities. They tend to be women who uh, didn't have those opportunities in high school or who have judged their experiences negatively. So I'm thinking about uh, one of the participants in my dissertation study who talked about the fact that she had prior coding experiences, but and she, she pointed directly to gender. She said, because of all the signals that I get as a woman in engineering, I didn't think I was good at coding. And so I gave the coding assignments and coding tasks to other people in their team. One of the reasons that I feel concerned about just leaving students to their own devices is because some of those social and interactional and communication dynamics play out. And it means that some students don't get the learning opportunities that we want them to have in their teams uh, because of uh, as a direct relationship to some of those social dynamics. So um, that leads to something I've been thinking about for one of my other projects a lot, working with engineering faculty at my institution to get them to that place of the alignment between learning outcomes, what we want them to know, how we teach them that thing that we want them to know, and then how we assess that they know that thing. And teamwork is a very fluid, if I would say, concept. So then I would ask you, how do you design your course class day-to-day interaction to really highlight these major concepts or outcomes that you want your students to walk away with in um, keeping with what you just said there, Trevian, about engineering team being, you know, university being a place where engineering teamwork happens. How do you set up, set the stage right? Maybe even right, we shouldn't use the qualifier right, but how do you set the stage? And then how do you actually assess that the students are meeting those outcomes? I think one of the things that we do particularly poorly in higher ed is just let students know what the learning outcomes are, right? So there are times when, so I'll give an example. Right now, my students are doing community-engaged design projects. And one of the things that emerged in our research on the course was that students, of course, see their community partners as uh, key stakeholders, but they also see me, the instructor, as a key stakeholder. I had formulated the class such that I was being very nebulous about my expectations because I wanted them to focus their attention on the community uh, members and on the community stakeholders. But what I recognized is they are also chasing the things that I think uh, are important in the class as well, right? That's this, just a, a resource that we have for learning in higher education. So what I, so the way I redirected and reformulated the course was to make explicit my expectations about uh, teamwork, project outcomes, and so so on and so forth. So one of the things that I would tell students, for example, this is not related to teamwork, but one of the things that I would tell them is, yes, we want you to produce a really, really amazing design, but also the more important thing is that you are collaborating and learning from community members, right? So I want to hear a lot about your communication, both within your teams, but also want to hear about your communication outside of your team with your community partner, right? Making that explicit. 
So then students come into the classroom and their engagement or their, their patterns of participation look outward towards their community member because I've made it explicit that this is my expectation. I say things in my class. Uh, I maybe shouldn't say this out loud, but I, I tell my students explicitly, your grade is as much about uh, how you participate in team in your teams as it is about the, the awesome design that you produce by the end of the semester, right? So at the end of the semester, we're going to sit down and have a conversation about your collaboration, both within your team and within uh, the communities that you're working in. We're going to talk about what went well, what didn't, and give each other feedback and so on and so forth, right? But if you disengage, if you are, uh, you know, not participating in the team, or if you are, you know, harming other students, harming uh, community members, we will hear that feedback, and it, it is a part of the expectation. It is a part of the thing that you're being graded on. I know grades are not the end-all, be-all, but I also recognize that students see grades as the end-all, be-all, right? So making my expectations for teamwork, but also the broader course far more explicit is one of the strategies uh, that we adopt for teaching teamwork. Really cool conversation. Really enjoying that um, because I think, you know, teamwork, as I said, it's very dynamic, very complex, and there are a lot of points to focus on. So one of my things to maybe start broader. So we sort of talk about the teamwork and importance of teaching that in college. Trevin, you mentioned communication. So a lot of the literature shows that communication is this sort of glue of the teamwork is really important, how the communication flows. And, you know, some of the teams, I think there was a research from MIT by Alex Bentland showing that some of the most effective teams are the ones where communication is efficient and also high communication versus even individual members' knowledge and expertise on the topic. My question is, how do you start talking to students about ways of communicating. So more broadly, and then maybe more specifically looking at engineering students. Now, not to stereotype, but I think there are sometimes some perceptions that our students who tend to gravitate towards technical field tend to be, say, less social, right? So communication is not necessarily comes easy and our students might not be aware about their own style. So I feel like when we start talking about communication, it's just opening this can of worms on what does it mean and how do I do that? So telling the students you need to communicate, what does it actually look like and how do we talk to students about that? Um, I love that you, you brought up that students might not be aware of their own styles or how they come across in groups. Uh, jumping back to Trevian's point about um, making sure that the learning outcomes are explicit. So I think it's really easy to tell the students that communication matters. As, as a communication faculty member in the College of Engineering, I find that it, I, I need to work hard to convince students that this piece matters, at least for some of the students. Um, but I do think that helping them to practice, and especially in lower stakes situations, and helping them to become more aware of their own strategies and their own styles, as well as how those play out in groups is really important. Um, we've been doing an activity where we have students before they're in their, their real teams for the semester, they get together with a group of students and they complete a decision matrix. It's an opportunity to practice um, using a pew chart or a, or a different type of decision matrix. And it's also an opportunity to listen to a recorded conversation that they participated in and start to reflect on their own participation as well as influence um, and to hopefully come to uh, value shared participation and shared influence in groups, um, recognizing that that different types of advocacy um, can lead to different types of outcomes as well. 
Robin, just to zoom in on that, for our listeners who are thinking about how they can integrate it in the classroom, so I think mm-hmm. you would do practice examples where students get recorded and then they watch their own recording of the interactions, right, and reflect on that. So, right. So I have an activity that I stole from an amazing colleague, um, Alan Hogue, I should give a shout out, uh, where um, students are designing a way to keep the driveway of their shared house on campus uh, free of snow. And we live in Michigan. And these are first year students, some of whom haven't seen snow yet, some of whom have grown up in Michigan and are maybe in northern Michigan very familiar with it. And they come up with a series of very silly design options that could range from paying a neighbor to clear it or buying a snowblower or shovel themselves to building a giant magnifying glass to keep um, the driveway warm and therefore no snow on it. And then they come up with a set of design constraints and objectives. And they as a team, decide which one is the best way to keep the driveway clear of snow. But in the meantime, it forces them to reflect on, okay, so we wanted to decide which one was going to be the cheapest. How did we decide how much it would cost to pay a neighbor? How did we figure out how much a snowblower costs? How did we determine how much it would cost to build a giant magnifying glass? Um, and then it also, we asked them to reflect on the group dynamics. So they talk about how much they participated relative to an average team member, how much influence they had relative to an average team member, and basically, they, they plot it on a chart and think about how could they help to pull everyone closer to the origin on a chart that is like graphing participation and uh, an influence. I think one of the things that we have been really, really concerned about late, lately, so that there's all this really great literature. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Jennifer Turn's work about the nature of reflection. Um, so I, again, the, my work's focuses on how students' socioacademic relationships shape their learning. And uh, in that work, I use things like social network analysis. So I've used social network analysis to study teamwork. I've used social network analysis to study a broader kind of large lecture classrooms and so on. Uh, one of the things that became apparent to us is that the nature of reflection and the nature of thinking about oneself in social context can be really painful and difficult, right? But also there's a rich opportunity for learning there. So, for example, when we ask students, name your study partners, right? Who are the people you study with? The expectation is that you're supposed to study with other folks. Who do you study with? And they say no one. And then they see this big chart where everyone is studying with someone else or most of the people have study partners and they realize just how isolated they are, right? That's a painful, painful process. In the same way, when we ask students to focus on their uh, their teamwork dynamics, I am uh, recalling uh, one of my graduate uh, researchers, uh, David Zabner, we were talking about a project. We had an idea to do something very similar uh, to Robin. In fact, we had these metrics that were showing students just how much of the team uh, team conversation they, you know, were dominating. So was it, if there were four people, was it 25, 25, 25? Was it, you know, 60, 30, 5, 5, right? And to reflect on that. And I remember David saw uh, one metric and he just shuddered and he goes, oh, my goodness, if I if I were the person who were 60 here, I would just feel absolutely mortified. Right. I said, well, maybe <laughs> maybe there's something to be learned here. Right. And it's not that you should stop talking, but maybe you should use your speech to, you know, facilitate other participation. Right. That's one of the things that we we want folks to get out of out of, out of it. But then. We started to get concerned about, you know, how do the two five and five students feel about this, right? What meaning would uh, the team make of this? Is it that they're not contributing? Is it they're, you know, you know, we've been using the term social loafing lately and not participating or contributing to the team? Or is there some other larger equity issue here, right? So I think 
my answer to that question is that I, I have tended to focus on mechanism, mechanisms of marginalization in teams and the idea that different students experience those mechanisms differently, right? What women experience in teams, so one of the things I document is patterns of interruption, you know, uh, what students will say, you know, men are talking over me, those types of things, looks very different than, say, what uh, Black students in our uh, teamwork experience were uh, talking about, kind of hostile conversation uh, being talk down to those types of things. And then when we look at the intersection of those teams, what black women are experiencing in these teams looks wildly different, right? So when we think about the mechanisms of marginalization and how that is shaping both the teamwork dynamic, but the communication dynamic, but also how students understand themselves in social context, I think all of these is the soup of, of challenging kind of interpersonal, but also internal personal uh, dynamics that students have to contend with. Trevin, if I could just add quickly. So, so the question, I guess, again, the complexity. <laughs> and, um, you know, obviously it's not just an engineering team, it's everywhere, any kind of teams. So my question again, kind of bring it back into the classroom. So the idea of reflection obviously is very powerful. And I think for, I, I can just imagine, you know, for each of us seeing ourselves, uh, on a screen interacting with others, you have your own perception idea of how you behave, but you don't see yourself from the side. And a lot of conversations about inclusion, right? Again, complex topic. How do you introduce what you just talked about, those examples of, for example, you have women, right? You know, something I've experienced being in engineering degrees for a while and kind of having various teams and whatnot. So how do you bring it into the classroom when you talk about communication? Would you, as an instructor, show a clip of students where this dynamic plays out to students and say, look, this is what we're talking about. Is that an approach for an instructor to kind of leverage that um, knowledge? Or do you need to be a little more subtle about this? So I think Robin is selling herself short a little bit. Uh, I, I can talk about my own dissertation data. So I, I'm thinking about, so my dissertation was mixed method studies, an ethnographic study where I was following three teams in Robin's class. And I'm recalling there were all sorts of things that I would document about how Robin could signal support for certain ideas, but also made certain uh, teamwork dynamic ideas very, very explicit to the team. So for example, uh, on the first day of uh, class, if, if I'm not mistaken, Robin, they do an activity on how to uh, construct and write an email. Right? These are first year students on their first day of class, and they're learning how to write an email to a professor, right? Here's how you should address people, right? And during that conversation, Robin says things like, you know, uh, women are more likely to be addressed without their title, right? And you want to be aware of that social dynamic when you're emailing uh, a professor who happens to be a woman, right? People of color are more likely to be delegitimized in this way, right? Robin makes all of these things explicit. Here's the type of language that you want to use when you are communicating with uh, professors and things like that. But in that conversation, Robin makes explicit, here are some kind of socio-historical Here's the social historical context in which you are sending this email. I know it doesn't feel that deep, but it really is, right? And people understand that, uh, these dynamics when they receive your email. You should be aware of it. I say all of that to say Robin also makes this explicit in her conversations about teams, right, which is something I was documented in my um, field notes. Over and over again, Robin would tell the students explicitly, you know, here's what the resource says about how women experience teamwork and engineering, and here's what you need to be aware of. I bring that up to say when I interviewed students after the dissertation, now, of course, making it, it explicit doesn't wash it all away and makes it, you know, make this this 
wonderful gender equitable uh, teamwork experience. However, when things arose, uh, you know, so there were two uh, men uh, on one of my teams who spoke uh, explicitly about the fact that, like, yes, I remember that time that, you know, so uh, her name is Stephanie in my dissertation. I remember that time that Stephanie told me that I was talking over her. And when Stephanie told me I was talking over her, I had a flashback to when Robin said, here's how women experience engineering. Right. And I didn't mean to be rude. I didn't mean to be talking over. I didn't mean to be, you know, reenacting all these things. But I knew that what I was doing was in this broader context because Robin made it explicit to us. So I think making it explicit really is an opportunity for students to hear it for the first time because they probably haven't heard these types of things for the first uh, before. Uh, but also when it happens, there's a context in which they can interpret it, but also make and co-construct meaning about these kind of interactions, um, which came through in my dissertation data. Thank you for making me look good, Trevion. I want to highlight that as a, as a white woman, I'm very aware of certain types of power dynamics, and I have had to learn about others from reading and talking to people. And I think that that has affected what I am good at talking about in my class and what I feel able to make explicit in my classroom. I think that the the tool that Trevian is talking about that can give a um, a conversational group uh, an analysis of who is speaking and in what ways is really, really powerful. I think that the framing that goes around that, that students see when they see, oh, wow, I only spoke 5% of the time, might feel very validating, right? Like they might feel like, man, I sure felt silence there, and look, here's the data to prove that, but it could also feel really terrible. And so I think that there's an important conversation to be had about how it is that we help students to to see that type of data. But I think that without that, we just let those uh, those dynamics continue on forever, right? Like our goal is to help, to, to use a metaphor, to help students see the water that they're swimming in, right? To become aware of that that culture around them and to empower them to push back in productive ways. But that's oh. not always easy to do. <laughs> Right. So I, I was um, I'm listening. I'm thinking there are four of us on this call, you know, like we have different personality types or different ways that we choose to engage. And I think when we talk about teams and team dynamics, it often sometimes get lost with the fact that some people are more reflective in how they learn as opposed to the one. So like me, I think till I get to an idea as opposed to I talk until I get to an idea. So I can see how demonstrating how the conversation broke up over time, what part in that is also taking into consideration the student who's more reflective in their learning, the student who's more, in, you know, introverted in how they learn. I know we all have to participate and people, we play on different strengths, but are there ways in which these things are taken or should be taken into consideration? So I, I, I think I want to address that in two ways. So what, again, I, I turn back to that ethnographic study of, of teams participating uh, in engineering design challenges. And one of the things that became apparent to us was even that dynamic is imbued with the kind of social power, interactional dynamics that we've been talking about throughout this uh, interview. Um, so I recall having an interview with one student during the pilot phase of the study and he expressed real frustration that there are some students, he, he used the term accountability. He said there are some students who are accountable to their ideas and some students who uh, are not. 
And what he meant by that was when I participate in a team, I am the introverted, reflective, I'm pulling together ideas, making sure all of my ideas are really tight before I pull them out to the team. And then there are students who he reflected on and said tended to be white and male students who could throw ideas against the wall. And the accountability, in his opinion, was when they just throw ideas in the wall, against the wall, that means all of us have to do the work on their behalf. And on the other hand, when I go home and I'm sketching and I pull all of my ideas together, right, I am accountable to my own ideas, right? So even that dynamic is itself imbued with social power dynamics, right? That said, I think the the second dimension of this that I don't know. I, it frustrates me sometimes when I see it uh, playing out in teams is that there are opportunities, I think, for us as instructors to engage students in how they participate in teamwork that engage them in both their own personal kind of beliefs about what it means to get engaged in teamwork, but also challenging our kind of disciplinary, institutional, valorized ideas about what engineers are and what they do. Right. So I'm recalling, for example, uh, Robin and I used to joke about uh, the apparatus of communication in engineering teams. I did air quotes around that as though people could see me. But the apparatus of communication in teams is not always dialogue. It's not always words between people. Sometimes it's the Google Doc that we're working in. Sometimes it's the CAD model that we're trying to build. Sometimes it's the whiteboard. Right. And who gets to commandeer these things. Right. It's sometimes social. Right. Sometimes it's physical. Uh, one of the things I talked about, I remember there was a black woman in one of my teams. And I would say things like she's she's in the team. She's saying words. And I know that those words are entering other people's ears. She's at the table. But something about this, it just feels like she's not quite part of the team. And I remember my advisor saying, well, document what you see. Write down everything what, uh, that you see and talk about, you know, what the mechanism here is here that you think is contributing to your conclusion that she's not really part of the team. And it will be small things like the team is at a table and it's time for us all to look at, say, the CAD model. Who is the person who has to walk around the table to, to get a good view of the team, right? Everyone else gets the laptop turned towards them. She has to walk around the table, right? She doesn't even see that as a, ma uh, you know, a matter of marginalization. But it's like, why is it that she always has to walk around the table? She says something and no one gives her feedback on the idea, right? She says something and no one is responding. But everyone is speaking through, say, the CAD model. Everyone is speaking through, you know, the whiteboard. You know, who gets the whiteboard marker handed to them and who has to commandeer it? All those types of things play out. And the 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 idea that, you know, it's it's something that's simply internal to the person, I think is – is I think we have to think about that in a, a kind of broader, larger context, right? Even those internal things still have social meaning. Kevin, just wanted to continue on this conversation, on, on the discussion you just had response. So the idea of use of technology, right, as part of the teamwork, use of uh, other channels of communication, how helpful it is to engage students in a better way and, you know, one of the things in our earlier podcast episodes, uh, Nicole and I talked a lot about with our guests about this idea that, for example, introverts, once they got into online space, they felt much more comfortable and much more engaged because they had this other opportunities to think and reflect and respond via text versus just being in a group dynamic when people talk and some people just might not feel comfortable with that. 
So what is your opinion about technology and what technology is worth paying attention to to help students engage? So I love that you brought that up. I think that um, when we were talking about the, the participation in face-to-face conversations, you were absolutely, there are so many things that play out in terms of who feels empowered to speak in that space. Um, and as you were highlighting, the technology can um, can improve that in various ways. And so even like a chat space where it's still thinking and in the moment responding, um, it doesn't have the dynamics of trying to gauge whether someone else is going to speak and trying not to interrupt or trying not to be interrupted or any of those pieces can go away because we can all be composing our, our responses simultaneously and pressing enter. Um, I think that there are all of these different ways that people participate in the negotiation of a design. Um, Trevian brought up the CAD model, and to the extent that there are amazing collaborative CAD platforms, I think that that is one way that people can control it. I think right now there aren't amazing collaborative CAD programs, and so mostly what you see is a group crowded around while one person controls the CAD and they speak, and the person does or does not implement what they are suggesting. Um, I think that Google Docs is better. We are lucky enough to teach in some pretty fantastic active learning classrooms where students can be sitting at at tables with a shared large screen so that even if they don't all have a laptop in front of them, they can all be looking at the same doc. And in theory, four or five of them can have their laptops open and I'll be controlling it at once. When when Trevion was collecting data in in my class, we had in our class, we had a really fun, fun is maybe not the right frame, an interesting experience of seeing power wielded in a way that I hadn't really thought through. So one person who wasn't necessarily talking very much was the person who was typing numbers on a a shared decision board. And the group would say, you know, are we going to, that one feels kind of high. Should we get a five, a six? And she'd kind of look around and she'd wait. Somebody would say, well, maybe we even want to go as low as four. And she'd hit four, right? And she has controlled what the group has decided in terms of the numbers without necessarily speaking up at all. So there are different ways of participation. And technology, I think, enables many more of those than than if we were all doing this in a paper-based way with one shared thing that we were working on. Um, so in keeping with the idea of how we use technology in the classroom, um, so it's great for collaboration and, you know, especially as we're talking about teamworks, we can see that. Um, I guess, how does the technology also, what's the word I'm looking for? How does it improve students' ability to reflect on their, the ways they engage in teams or the ways they navigate these different power and social dynamics that they may sometimes not even be aware is there. So so my response to one of the ways that technology can enable those um, is through allowing for uh, scaffolded reflection where so technology leaves all of these digital traces. Right. So we can see how many times Natasha has added things to a Google Doc. We can see whether Robin has deleted some of the things that Natasha added or changed those things. And I think that as as faculty, it's up to us to figure out what is the right framing and the right way to prompt students to reflect on these pieces. But I think that it's a a powerful opportunity if we do it right. I think Robin went precisely to where I was going with my uh, uh, answer here. And it's about uh, this, this concept that we've been calling activity traces. So it's no, this is not a term that we've come up with, but we've started thinking about what activity traces do students leave uh, when they're participating uh, in in teams and collaborative learning, and how are <laughs> and how are different uh, uh, manifestations of active 
activity traces, uh, reflective of things like social power dynamics, communication, and so on uh, during the learning process. So for example, uh, uh, we are using a platform called Coding Rooms and we've been practicing or par uh, partnering with Coding Rooms for data on student participation in team coding activities. And one of the things that we learned that we can see in coding rooms, uh, it's a couple of things. So to, to manage learning, we get to see all the things students tried when their code uh, failed, right? When they had errors and those types of things, how did they try to fix it? And in that way, it can point our attention at, as instructors to the types of skills and ideas that students are uh, struggling with. On the other hand, when it comes to teamwork, we can see things like who is contributing the most and I want to be clear here, we're not interested in this from a let's punish the students who are not contributing a lot uh, perspective. We're interested in this in, uh, okay, is this a signal of who uh, who feels confident to participate and who doesn't, who needs more practice, or other forms of uh, marginalization, for example. You know, if it's the case that we can detect every time Robin puts something in, Trevion is right behind to erase or modify or change and is that a, a pattern of marginalization that we should be aware of as instructors, right? So uh, this use, it's not just that the students are using technology, but it's that that technology often entails a ton of data that we can use as instructors uh, to, uh, to manage and observe and assess student learning, but also direct our attention to certain topics in the course, but also to teamwork dynamics that are shaping students' learning. One question I have is also maybe more focused on the instructors themselves. And I think the sort of conversation about the value of teamwork and the social dynamic within that is more for recent conversation. So a lot of the instructors, the engineering instructors who are in the classrooms right now, they, you know, might not have the uh, bringing and experience that prepared them for understanding the dynamics and teaching teaching this concept in, um, in the classroom. How do you help shift instructors' mindset about the value of the social part of problem solving? Because I think, you know, we can agree probably in engineering, a lot of the focus is still on sort of the conceptual knowledge, right? <laughs> and the social is, well, you know, you do something, you work in groups, it's fine. But as long as you're learning your concepts, you're good. So how do you work with instructors to help bring forward this idea that the social aspect of that is really important and matters? I wish that I felt like I had a great answer there. I don't. And luckily, I'm not in faculty development, so it's not really on me to have that right answer. But I, I think that very few instructors would say, that they are doing teams just because that's what's like what they're told to do. Maybe somewhat. And I don't know how we win those folks over. But I think that a lot of folks would say, well, teamwork is a, a really powerful pedagogical tool also. Or they would talk about the value of teams um, in, in the students' professional lives once they leave college. And I think for either of those, it's really easy to pull at the fact that the experiences that students are having are embedded in this other set of cultural expectations and um, that it's impacting students' experiences in various ways that that they can affect or that they have the power to affect. Now, I also think that I have a whole lot of sympathy for an instructor who has 200 students in their class and, you know, 50 teams in their class. I don't really know. I, I feel like, so in my largest class, I have 12 teams. I still feel like I am 
not as aware of what is going on in as many spaces as I would like to be. And I don't feel like I have the bandwidth to do the kind of support that I would like to be doing. And if I had an order of magnitude more students um, and more teams, I would be even less able to do that. So I, I will say that this is a luxury of being at Tufts that I think my colleagues have been extremely receptive to this type of work and to thinking about these issues. And even, you know, I, I have enjoyed the fact that, like, often the people spurring the conversations come to me and they're like, what do you think about this ungrading idea? Right? <laughs> You're the education researcher here. Tell us about ungrading. What do you think about this? Or even I am seeing this in the teamwork. Uh, that's happening in my class, and I don't know how to think about it. One of the things that I've started to engage uh, faculty on is thinking more about process and not uh, outcome. So often our reflection on how teamwork is going is we take the student's final presentation, right, or the, the assignment that they submitted, and we see the final cleaned up version, and we say, okay, this looks good. Team must be doing well, <laughs> right? Or there's a part missing. Who is this assigned to? Oh, it's this person. Let's, let's find a way. Let's find out what's happening here, right? We often think about outcome instead of process. And I think a refocus on process helps us uh, do a better job of thinking about how, A, these interactional dynamics are shaping students' learning, which is the, the core part of my work, but also what it is that we're doing in the classroom that is uh, supporting or not supporting students, right? So I think... Part of the conversation that we need to have is how we are conceptualizing what it means to be successful in engineering. It's not great, right? In fact, uh, one of my frustrations is when we think about, say, grades as the, the ultimate outcome, often we're missing all the things that, say, you know, historically excluded students or, you know, uh, women in engineering are doing to, uh, to, to make the grade, right? Uh, they aren't existing helplessly in a vac vacuum, right? They are employing all sorts of uh, or strategies and mechanisms to overcome some of these uh, social dynamics that we've been talking about this, throughout this uh, interview. I think helping faculty understand that, you know, just because the outcome looks good does not mean the process was what you expected it to be, has turned their attention to thinking about the classroom in a different way. But like Robin, you know, I'm not in faculty development, so this is not one of those things that, uh, you know, not one of the places or spaces that I've been working in lately. But I think process over outcome is is has been the go to for me when I'm speaking with other faculty members. OK, so I know you're you both said you're not in faculty development, but you've spent a lot of time thinking about this, as is clear from our conversation. If you had to walk someone through something actionable that they, they don't have the wealth of knowledge of the research like you do, or maybe they don't even have the time, but they are very keen on incorporating these wonderful activities you've talked about in your class. What are some actionable insights you would offer? Yeah, so actionable things. So I think this, this comes down to a number of, I think, dimensions of teamwork. So often, I even think about it in the way that I write up uh, research papers, like often there's a portion where I talk about team formation. So how are we forming teams and what uh, implications does that have for how students get to access uh, learning opportunities? So one of the things that we do, uh, and this is a strategy that I also steal from Robin, is that we don't put students in teams uh, immediately upon entry into the classroom. Uh, we do a few exercises for the first, you know, week or two where we're getting to see interaction dynamics, where that, that dimension that we talked about earlier, right? How individuals engage in teamwork. 
so we can make decisions about, okay, here's a student that clearly has no problem participating and speaking up in team, and here's a student that appears to be struggling. Um, what is our learning outcome, and, you know, should these two students be on the same team or not? So, right, team formation is one of the things that uh, we think about. The construction of different activities. So, you know, our uh, there are activities that I do that purposefully uh, pull communication out of the design process. We did a really uh, funzy activity uh, a couple weeks ago in my design course where part of the teamwork uh, exercise was everyone got a role on the team, and then they got a few minutes to discuss things and get on the same page. And then there was no communication for, you know, 45 minutes of the class. And the idea was you have a real problem if the person who's managing your budget never got to speak, <laughs> right? You have a real problem if the person who's supposed to be purchasing or building your bridge never got to talk about, you know, the nature of the bridge that they were building, right? And very quickly, students recognize the importance of not only communicating my ideas and getting them onto the table, but making sure that everyone in the team has had some input onto uh, the project. So we do those types of activities uh, uh, or building in those types of activities to make sure that students uh, can understand themselves, the grasp uh, or the, the importance of communication. But then, you know, there are these, and this is another thing that I steal from Robin, and Robin, I think you steal from NASA, right? There are these great little check-in moments that we use in the class. Um, so we do, for example, uh, individual design, and I know we focus heavily on design, there are other forms of teamwork, but there's an individual design proposal. And the, the, the rationale that Robin gave to me and she gives explicitly to the class is I am doing this because I know that there's going to be one person who loves to build ROVs and they're going to go home and be really excited and then they're going to come back and dominate team discussions. We do this so that when we put students in teams, everyone has at least had some preliminary ideas some preliminary thoughts about what the ROV should look like, right? And then there were these check-ins, the preliminary, uh, I'm sorry, that was the individual design proposal. Then the preliminary design review is, okay, bring in, we, we haven't narrowed this thing down to one idea anymore, right? We want three different ideas that you all have thought through or three different aspects of your design that you've thought through. And in that meeting, we do things like, so tell us about some things outside of those three that didn't show up, right? Because we know those tend to come from the students who have been talked over or who have been excluded from team discussions. All right, so those types of activities uh, are built into the course. They're easy grading activities. I shouldn't say easy, but they are not, they don't take as long to grade. Uh, so instructors are often like really happy to implement them because they are low hanging fruit uh, opportunities to give students feedback, but also to check in on teams and see teamwork and interactional dynamics in situ in front of you uh, in the classroom. But these types of activities are, I think, actionable things that we can build in. Those were all great ideas. I want to add, um, I think it's really important for faculty to think about what they are monitoring in the teams. And so if you have just a few teams um, and if you have some time in class when you can kind of float around, thinking about what it is that you're paying attention to and recognizing that, like, when you're right with the group, they are probably very different than when you appear to be sitting somewhere nearby checking your email, even if actually paying attention to the group. I also think thinking about how we can decrease the friction for students of reporting issues to us. So I think if there is not an expected message to faculty letting me know how letting letting the faculty member know how the team is doing, the barrier to reporting, hey, our team is struggling right now, is higher. If there are scheduled expected check-ins 
and then thinking through what kinds of information we're collecting at those check-ins, because not only are we figuring out what we're monitoring, but we're also defining for students what matters to us. Um, so things like asking the students um, if we're doing some sort of peer assessment, not just asking about who's contributing to the actual work, but asking about things like who is listening to others' ideas and engaging with them, um, because that can give you some cues to some issues there, as well as tells the students, hey, this is something that I think is important for a team member and you should be monitoring on yourself and other people. Asking things like how well is your team sharing ideas or how well is your team sharing the workload rather than just is Trevion doing his work or not, basically. I think I think our ways to help your your the faculty member understand better what's happening in the teams or what are the concerns there. I think otherwise it's too easy as as Trevion noted earlier to focus on the people who don't seem to be completing their work without thinking through what are the barriers perhaps that I am creating as a faculty member or else that the, that the world's creating that are causing those imbalances in the code? If I can, this is a very interesting answer, and I think we're coming to the end of our conversation. But there is one thing that came up, which I think relates to communication and the comfort with, with that, but maybe we're not explicit about it, is the idea of trust building because Robin, you're just talking about providing feedback, but it's not easy for students sometimes to feel that they can talk uh, openly about their teammates. And so I think this idea of trust and psychological safety, how do you build that, right? And you also, especially if you're teaching like a one semester class, there's not much time. Some students might know each other, some might not, but as an instructor, are there tricks of the trade you can use to help students develop this feeling of safety in communicating with an instructor, but also providing perhaps critical feedback to the teammates and, and feeling feeling okay about that? That's a, that's a really good and important question. I think that there, as you note, there's the two pieces. There's the, as the team, building trust and psychological safety. And then there's the helping them feel that with me so that they might be more willing to come and disclose issues. I think that one of the barriers to them coming and telling a faculty member is when they're worried that it will hurt their teammates' grades. And so I think putting in place policies that at least prevent that initially, that allow people to approach you knowing that that's not on the table at least yet, can be really helpful. And so I always, at least in my first year class, I talk about how my goal is to support the team, that there that there is a level at which individual teammates' grades are affected by how well they work on the team, but that that is sort of reserved for extreme cases and that in 80% of the teams, I expect everyone to get the same grade and my goal is to help the team do well together. I think that that helps to lower that barrier. I don't think that it makes that barrier go away. I also try to do so. For me, it's important that I go by my first name and decrease what feels like a hierarchical relationship. I recognize that as the as an instructor, I am still in a hierarchical relationship with my students. Um, I bring in pictures of my family and my life. I disclose uh, some um, struggles that I've had as a student that I feel like help to humanize me in the classroom and hope that that breaks down some of those barriers. At the team level, um, I often tell the story of a team that uh, my co-instructor and I worried about a lot at the beginning of the semester. Their first couple of um, reports were not what we were expecting in various ways. When we had a meeting with them, we started calling them the taco team because they one of the things that they explained about their process was that they got together and had tacos at somebody's house every Tuesday, something like that. By the end of the semester, that team actually was doing really, really well. They did one of the best final reports in the class. 
And I attribute that to the psychological trust and psychological safety that that group was feeling. And I do tell that story in class and I try to encourage them. We have a few assignments that are intended to be as much social as they are academic. But all of these are pieces that I don't feel that we're achieving the the psychological safety on the teams that I wish that we were. These are uh, small attempts towards that ultimate goal. Yeah, so I want to reiterate that that thing that Robin talked about earlier is these opportunities for like kind of weekly feedback. So, you know, the students in Robin's class use Tandem, which is an online teamwork support team tool. And I submit these kind of weekly check-ins that take them like a minute to to complete. It's it's a low-hanging fruit. And I think there are, correct me if I'm wrong, Robin, at least five different dimensions that they can report uh, feedback on. So it's things like our workload is is feels approximately equal. Right. And they can say, yes, you know, I think it's like a five point scale that they can say, you know, yes, strongly agree or something like that, that our workload is equal. On the other hand, they can uh, say things like, you know, we are having a hard time uh, finding a time to meet. Right. I think what what I learned uh, in kind of sitting in with these teams and watching them interact is like it's actually kind of the smaller things that we never tend to that can fall into larger issues. Our response to it as instructors was to say, okay, this team is struggling to find a time to meet. Perhaps we step in and say, you know, hey, let's let's help ourselves get organized. Or maybe we pull some class time aside, right? We have some open lab class time. Maybe we set aside extra class time for them to do the things that they would have done during this extra meeting. So it's giving students those opportunities. But the other thing that I recognized was it's really like when it feels small, even to students at the time, okay, we couldn't find the time to meet this week. That's frustrating, but it's not that big a deal. They're less likely to come up to Robin and uh, and say something. And then it happens over and over again, and then it festers, and then it gets worse. Suddenly the small thing that they didn't even think to report becomes this larger issue. What I love about the weekly check-in is that, like, it gives students an opportunity to say, you know what, we we did have a harder time <laughs> meeting this week, and maybe uh, maybe we do need some help here. Um, students, I learned from my research, use those opportunities strategically. So sometimes it's they're waving a big flag to the instructor and saying, we need help, right? Um, it's probably not quite as bad as I put in the survey, but it's their their way of saying, we need help. Please see us and and come and help us. But those opportunities are really important. And then the second piece that I think is reducing barriers. So one of the things I've become really concerned about is like I tell students, I do the same thing. I know that at Michigan, there's an institutional at least in our department that I was in, there was a culture around uh, using first names. It's not quite the same here at Tufts. And so, like, you know, I, I developed concerns about like, who feel comfortable calling me Trevion, who still calls me Professor or Dr. Henderson, those types of things. I, I'm aware of that. Uh, but lowering barriers to, and doing things like I'm just going to set aside some time for students to come in and talk to me, maybe about the course, maybe about the work outside of the course. Lowering barriers like I recognize this class is a challenge, and so I'm going to create policies in the class that let you know that my concern is more about your learning than your grade, right? So I do things like, you know, my submission deadline is uh, is uh, flexible. I tell students, if it's due on Friday night at midnight, I promise you, at Friday night at 12.01, I'm not reading it, right? If you need some extra time, go to bed, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I hope their, you know, understanding that of that is, like, my my concern. And I actually put it in the syllabus, and I say during class, my concern is that you are doing your best work, submitting your best work, and you're probably not doing your best work at 2.30 in the morning. 
right? So those types of like class policies and even saying things like to, to return it back to teamwork. Hey, when you ask for an extension, you're almost certain to get it, but I want your whole team involved in this, right? I want y'all to have had a conversation. I want y'all to have submitted, you know, an email to me together, right? Talking to me about, you know, what, what it is that's going on in the, in the team that, it, you know, requires extra work. Often it's, it's small things like this thing turned out to be way larger or the 3D printers, uh, in the makerspace were taken up and we, we are just waiting for this thing to print, right? But for the most part, I say, if the, the deadline is at midnight, it's totally fine to submit it at, you know, Saturday at 10 a.m., go to bed, right? And I'm hoping that that creates a culture in the classroom where students feel comfortable speaking to me, communicating to me about their personal issues, but also their teamwork issues. And my uh, strong inclination, because of the nature of the conversations that I have with students, that that has been the effect. So interesting. You know, one quick question. Human nature is complicated and, um, you know, there are no ideal kind of scenarios for what the collaboration should look like. I don't know if you have an idea. So kind of like for instructors to know what are we moving towards? What kind of dynamics we really want to achieve in our classes? I think a piece of that, at least, is that we want the groups to have negotiated a set of fair and transparent like systems for themselves so that they are aware of the types of processes that make a team work well and that they are that they can take ideas of what worked well in this experience into their next one and advocate for those. Um, I think that we want. So in in many of the classes that I'm in, the student team is producing something that's pretty cool. I love like one of the things that teams enable is bigger projects than individuals could do, right? And I want the whole team to have like a mastery experience and some psychological ownership of the really cool thing that they've done as first-year students in, in my class. And I want that to feel like a shared product, which I think means that everyone had like important roles, right? So if we think of inclusion and belongingness and the idea that like there's a piece of this that that feels like I uniquely contributed, like I, I had a role that couldn't have just been a cog in the machine, I want everyone to have that kind of experience. Well, this was a wonderful conversation. Thank you both for sharing with us. I learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners will too. Um, I would just want to thank you for the time you spent with me and Natasha today. Thank you so much. It was really wonderful. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you so much.